This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to This is A Voice, Series 5, Episode 7. The podcast where we get vocal about voice. And we have a very special guest. We this do. is Kate Fraser-Neely, who is joining us from across the pond. Now, I'm just going to say a little bit about Kate, because this is a packed resume. Are you going to let us say hello first? No, not, not for ages. Okay. No. Go on, Lynn, say hello. Hi, guys. It's wonderful <laughs> to be here. <laughs> okay, so Kate, a multi-instrumentalist, singer in multiple styles, voice teacher, pedagogue, published author, composer, choral conductor, collaborative pianist, hooray, church organist, vocal curriculum writer, and founder of four arts organisations. You've been quite busy in your life. Well, it's not happened all at once. Oh, okay, okay, that's fine. It wasn't, wasn't just last week. Um, you're also the co-author of the best-selling book, Singing Through Change, Women's Voices in Midlife, Menopause and Beyond, with Nancy Boss and Joanne Bozeman. And a phenomenal piece of work. It is. Thank you. We highly recommend it. And um, both of you, both you and Gillian, are featured in Dr. Elizabeth Benson's book, Training Contemporary Commercial Music Singers. So we are. Hooray. And there's one thing that really interested me, which is 300 contemporary American works you've sung, which means yes. that you are very used to extreme vocalising. Well, you know, I've wondered about that. It's still, it's not quite the same as heavy metal, but you do use a wide variety of sounds that you don't normally think of as the classical lexicon or musical theater expression. Absolutely. Or, or even there are different vocalizations, even than blues uh, and R&B um, grunts and expressions. It's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah. And it's fun when you, because I've done this a handful of times, when you are doing the first performance of something, you have no recordings to go on. The only thing that you have to go on is the composer's original style, if you're lucky. If you're lucky. Yep. And if you've had time to work with the composer. Yeah. Um, and if the composer chooses you for a work, there's something about the way they've heard you deliver before, even if it's in a different genre, that grabs their attention. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I also worked with uh, grant-making organizations to try to fund this a little bit. Nice. Um, and that's how I got to work with John Cage and Laurie Laitman uh, before she was known as an art song composer. Maybe. So we're, talk we're talking a while ago, but it's definitely part of my background. Really fascinating. It makes me think that... Um, because I know one of the things that you want to talk about is the book, This is a Voice. And yes, it makes yes. Me think about you are one of the people who would fall so naturally into our readership because it's so wide ranging and mm -hmm. you are so used mm -hmm. to a wide ranging mm -hmm. repertoire. Well, I, I do have some questions about the book because it's this it's seeming, seemingly innocuous. Is that the right word? Yeah little book and it is just jam packed and it's jam packed with things you don't ordinarily find in books about singing. The way I found it and got to it was through the chapter on beatboxing. They actually teach beatboxing as part of a seminar that I do once a year. And this past year, I couldn't read any of my notes. I couldn't concentrate on any of my notes. It's like I completely lost the ability to teach this. And I was a little bit desperate. And 
I think it might be COVID brain. It might be postmenopause brain. I don't know what it was. But I started looking up on the web and was led to the video that was made illustrating these. And I said, this is a voice. That's the video. I said, I wonder if Jillian knows that they have a, a something that's their trademarked name. <laughs> and then it turned out to be your book. And I was really blown away with the uh, language you used, the ability to track the pathways of air, the ability to what happens when you're using certain articulators, what happens when you are using the right kind of energy, what happens when you build a drum kit. That that uh, was, I don't know why on earth with my background, I had not thought, oh yeah, you're building a drum kit when you're doing this. That's such an excellent way to start. Yeah. So uh, I would love to know how, do you guys have any experience beatboxing and how you came to write this chapter that's so good? That we, we, is the chapter that nearly didn't get written, you know, when he came back. Because um, uh, just for, the, for those people, because we did do a, a podcast on the history of the book, but yeah. just to praise it, we were invited to write the classical section of the book. And we went, hang on a minute, we also do contemporary work. So please, can we write the contemporary work? What's it all about? Well, I no, went, we were invited to write about singing. Yeah. And writing about singing meant classical. Yeah. And right. We said, nope. That's not how it is these days yep. because 98% of listeners are actually listening to contemporary commercial music styles. Yep. So we are not going to write just about classical. Yeah. So I went down to have the meeting, to, to do the pitch meeting, and found out what the book was about and that they wanted this wide-ranging thing. And they wanted about seven or eight different writers to write different sections of it. And I went, we'll write it all. I love that idea. So I came and they went, yes, okay, fine. And um, I went, I came back and Gillian said, You've, we're doing what? <laughs> we don't know anything about beatboxing. You're doing the research on it. And I went, no, it's fine. We'll be fine. And to be fair, he did. I mean, Jeremy is a natural researcher. You know, if there's something on Google about us that's up there for five minutes, I'll find it. he'll find it. Someone will take it down, but he'll have seen it. Yeah. I don't know how he does it, but he does. The beatboxing uh, thing was really interesting because I was fascinated by it, but had never done it. I'd watched people do it. I'd watched videos of it. And then I went into what's written about it. And the answer is very little. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's very little written on well, it. It's from an oral tradition, right? It's, an oral tradition. it's from an oral tradition. And, and often when we try to go to, you know, codify these things, you sound like a, an academician trying to squeeze it down. I did not find that in your book, though. Thank you. I didn't find it. I thought I, I, it was just a little bit more natural. Can I say that I think what enabled us to write the book, aside from your ability to research, is your phenomenal sense of rhythm mm -hmm. and the fact that we both have an interest in speaking voice. I mean, maybe out of the two of us, me in particular, and um, an interest, not a specialty, but an interest in phonetics. Mm. So I was starting to hear all these sounds like... <laughs> and Right, right, right. Very good. Thinking, right. Yeah. What's the phonetics of those sounds? Well, you know, I, I do think that that speaking portion 
that's that raises another interesting topic, and I know we could zigzag zag forever. But mm-hmm. I come to singing through being an instrumental musician, not through being an actress. Mm-hmm. So the speech component has always bothered me a little bit. And it wasn't until I started reading Kristen Linkletter stuff, but your stuff reminds me of that in that it's very specific. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about your chapter on the beatboxing and your interest in the voice, they're melded together very um, cleanly. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes back to my background because there was a sort of a really formative part of my interest and my career, which was about age 26, I started working at a drama school. And as it happens, the head of voice there, so when we say head of voice, we mean head of spoken voice, voice and speech, voice and text, was Andrew Wade, who later became the head of voice at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I was teaching singing and he was teaching voice. And he said to me, well, surely it's all one instrument. You know, what what are you doing in your classes? And would you like to see what I'm doing in mine? Yeah, absolutely. Lovely. You know, let's um, cross refer. Let's cross fertilize. We used to get together. We used to chat. We used to do joint classes. And I then became very interested in how we use the mechanism for speaking as well as singing. And I've maintained a lifelong interest in that, although I don't teach text in the way that an acting tutor teaches text. I love text. I mean, I was a leader singer for 20 years. Of course, of course. I love text. Right. Um, And I think that was, you know, that was one strong component. And he would teach me every exercise we were trying out. And trust me, I am slow. In the car, I'd, I'd have written um, a beatboxing exercise, for instance, and mm-hmm. I would say to Gillian, Gillian, I'd be driving and I'd be going, right, you need to do this. I'm not going to give you any demonstrations, no examples. Mm-hmm. I am literally going to read the instructions yeah. out to you and you've got to see if you can do it. Yeah. Well, that was brilliant then. That's the uh, incubator that you yeah. need to try out these things. Yes. Yeah. I think also it's the, because we're both practical teachers, mm. we always have been. Mm. It's like, I love reading papers. I've just put a video up on analyzing somebody's um, paper on YouTube. But oh, it's Verdolini. It's the Verdolini paper. Yeah. Skill acquisition. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I love doing stuff like that. But my question always is this is great. Now, how do we apply it? Mm. Yes. And, and apply it, that's. And it will always be teachers like you guys that take the science and -hmm. make it practical. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that, there's that little segue that has to happen. Um, I think a lot of young teachers sometimes feel they have to teach what the science is um, or teach like your larynx should move this way um, because that's what the science has shown us. But that doesn't help somebody do it in a free, organic, connected manner. Mm-hmm. It's the human experience that then mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what we try our best to do is, in terms of the science, um, making it digestible, but also showing teachers in particular how to map their experience as teachers uh, and their experience as singers, how to map that 
on the voice science. They're two entirely different disciplines. Ah. And this well, is maybe it's the other way around. Well, Whichever it is, yeah, the, the experiential has to be mapped with it. They're two, they're two different experiences and they have two different purposes. Mm. When you think about a science experiment, what you want to do is to remove as many possibilities as possible mm-hmm. so that you are focusing down and you get a very clear route through your theory. Reduce those variables. Thank you. That was the phrase I was looking for, mm-hmm. reducing the variables. It's sort of built into most ex- most experiments because mm. if you don't reduce the variables, you don't get a clear result at the end. Well, you know, it's interesting. You should. That's brilliant. And it's interesting because <clears throat> last year, there is a researcher at University of Madrid by the name of Dr. Felipe La, who is doing research on on the menopause voice, she and is, yes, she, yes, and she is uh, she she held a symposium where she got all sorts of voice people to talk about the relationship between teaching voice and science, mm. and so Nancy Joanne and I do appear on that, and I talk about that that the teaching of voice and 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 the arts are more similar to science than people realize. And then I listed the reasons. And one of them was exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't really separate them. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, is quite a hot topic at the moment. I mean, mm-hmm. I know Philippa quite well. And I am leading a roundtable at PIVOC in August. End, at the end of August, end of August. Um, entitled Voice Science, Do We Need It? Oh, oh. Carly, that is so timely. Oh, that's fantastic. Please tell her we said hi. I will indeed. I will indeed. We've we've got um, pedagogues. We've got voice scientists. We've got voice scientists who are pedagogues and singers. And I think it'll be very interesting to see what we come up with because we need better interfaces. We do. There's a translation that needs to happen. And I think people don't realise this. And the other thing that drives me nuts is when people take a line from a paper and go, this is the truth, and therefore everybody now must do it. Mm. Because this this line in this paper said so. So it's like, you know, the person in the experiment, uh, when they sang this note, this happened, and then yes. the outcome therefore is everybody must do that and they will get the same outcome. And I'm going, no, you can't, yeah. you can't extrapolate that mm. from that paper mm. because that paper was on one person in one specific Position or one condition. Exactly, exactly. Drives me nuts. It tells us something, but it ain't pedagogy. No. Uh, you know, uh, that's one of the reasons when we wrote Seeking Through Change that we made it about the vetted science, but the stories of the women, mm-hmm. because that flushes out that flushes out the bones. Yeah. And so many of the studies, now there is one large one uh, that Dr. Kathy Price did, but most of them do not have that many participants in the studies. And you always have to look at how many people participated in this mm-hmm. and realizing that they are trying to narrow down, they're trying to narrow down what they considered fluff, but might very well be a huge human experience. Yes. I mean, case histories are messy. Yes. Yes. The thing is, you know, if you have a lot of case histories, you do start to see trends if you're prepared to do that work. Um, and also, I think for the readers, and this is a case with your book, the kind of the interweaving of that with the other info, it allows people to feel that it's real and they can relate to it. And it's going to make it more digestible. Mm. 
Yeah, thank you. But back to this is a voice and beatboxing. Yes. Um, I also found that you there were a couple of sentences that just all the way through the book that really jumped out at me. Here's the sentence, because I've only heard this talked about um, a few times. The term classical singing is often used in a non-specific way to describe a number of different musical styles that really come under the broader, broader title of Western lyric singing. That is so important. There are beaucoup de styles of classical singing, many of them requiring different techniques, different phrasing, different breath response, different uh, intellectual uh, connection. It, it, I was like, okay, that at the beginning of the classical singing section was spot on. So there's lots of little gems like that all the way through the book. Mm. And I think for me as, you know, I've been in the, in doing this for 43 years now. Um, I am really, I, I've decided to let it go because of that you can't butt heads with everything, but I am tired of hearing people talk about classical singing as if it's one thing, mm -hmm. you know, they say I was in college and I studied classical singing. Mm. What does that mean? And then they lump what they didn't get in their undergrad or grad degree. They lump that under the faults of classical singing training. Mm -hmm. That's just ignorant. I'm there. I said it publicly. That's ignorant. Yeah. It's misinformed. I, I think, you're, I think <laughs> yep. you're so right. And you've just reminded me of one of my very early PhD supervision sessions with Professor Graham Welch, who was himself a professional singer. And I said something about, well, you know, I, I, I want to look at classical singing compared with musical theatre. And he said, now, what is classical singing? And I said, well, we always know when a classical singer is singing. And he said, well, are you talking about Machau? And are you talking about Stockhausen? Or are you just talking about the classical era and Mozart? Right. Or, or 19th century opera. There you go. You know, where, where are we here? And, um, you know, kudos to um, more contemporary research. That term, Western classical or Western lyric music, is the one that is most used now in research papers when referring to the, I mean, you know, let's, it's an umbrella. And so is CCM. That's a massive umbrella. Mm. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and we, use, we use those labels for convenience sake. Yeah. But when they're used over and over and over again, they lose their meaning and they're not specific enough. And, and um, even that term CCM music, and I know where it comes from. And that was at a time when, you know, all, all popular styles were shunned in, in academia at any rate. So it was a good umbrella term, but we, we have to find different ways of saying it now, because that still comes from a, classical academic frame of reference mm -hmm. that term ccm still comes from that and i haven't found the term i will say popular musics um or but even that is just is just too narrow a focus mm -hmm. 
I think Absolutely. it's tricky and I think that's an evolving field and it's, yeah. it's an ongoing conversation. And I think we just have to stay with it and see where it goes. Yeah. Exactly. And you know something is alive when the language around it is changing. Mm-hmm. It's true. Because language changes and that's an important that's that's how we know the difference between, let's say, um the various forms of English and Latin. Yep. <laughs> Agreed. Yep. Agreed. There was something that you said that you picked up mm. in the beatboxing chapter, and you said um, breath use. Oh, the airstreams. Airstreams. Mm. I want to talk about that because I've never talked about it. Oh, go for it. Um, it's in the book. I talk about four different uses of air, four different types of air that you can use. There is um, pulmonic egressive, which is a, a handy way of saying breathe out mm. from your lungs. Pulmonic ingressive, which is breathe into your lungs. And then non-pulmonic egressive, which is air that comes out but doesn't come from your lungs. And non-pulmonic ingressive, which is air that goes in but doesn't go down. Right. And it was an interesting one. You should explain for the listeners that when we're talking about non-pulmonic egressive, yes. where does it come from? Non-pulmonic, non-pulmonic egressive, the one that goes out, yeah. is just the air that's in your mouth. You've closed your vocal folds, mm-hmm. so you're actually holding your breath, mm. but you're, you're using air that is just in your mouth, and you're using your tongue or your cheeks or pressure to push it out, and it goes like this. It's a non-pulmonic P, mm. as opposed to the pulmonic P. Right. Um, and it was interesting because I was listening to hundreds of videos of, because video is really, I mean, you, you said it's a, it's an oral tradition, but I actually think beatboxing is a video tradition. It's certainly become a video tradition. Yes. There are so many videos on, on YouTube, but also there are so many 12 and 13 year olds oh making videos God. showing the techniques that they're, they're trying out and using. Phenomenal virtuosity. Phenomenal. I can't get anywhere near it. Mm, right. But it was interesting that people were talking about what they were doing and I was listening and I was going, well, that's not the normal airflow that I would expect to hear. Mm. So I was trying to work it out, and I don't know whether I was the first one to write this down, but you got those four different airflow versions, Mm. and it means that you can sing while you're making percussion. Right. Because you've got pulmonic singing coming down your nose, for instance, and then you've got non-pulmonic beatboxing coming out of your mouth. Right. And it's really fascinating that you can do two airflows at the same time. You can actually do an ingressive, out, ingressive inwards and an outgressive. Oh, there's my language. Mm. You can do an ingressive inwards and an egressive outwards at the same time. Right. But they are different airflows. Mm. Right. And mm-hmm. once you get that, it was, I think that's almost the first exercise I do in the book because I thought it was so important. Uh, well, it was a good place for me at the time that I was looking at this. It was a really good place to start because you could do simple experiments mm-hmm. while you were reading them. And, you know, who knows quite how the central nervous system works in this, but by doing those simple exercises and following them, I was able to do some recall. Yes about what I had done before, what I knew before, which I don't know, that was just, that was an incredible moment. And I should have written to you guys right away, but I didn't. Well, you're, um, yeah. but you're, you're telling <laughs> us now, brilliant. I, I, the other thing I remember that occurred to me, you know, when 
he was walking me through some of the sounds. I thought, these are all the noises your mother told you not to make. Yes. You know when you used to practice making a farting noise? <laughs> and your mother would be annoyed or you're going yes. <laughs> slurping noises. Yep. It's all in beatboxing. Yeah. You know, it's true. They're very human sounds. They are. <laughs> and then I always think of them as, as they are the most extreme consonant use you can do. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think, I think, um, I mean, this is an aside, you can decide whether or not you want to keep it in. But, you know, one of the reasons I love, loved being a singer, I had to stop singing due to bilateral vocal phoresis, which is another whole story. Mm -hmm. But the articulators are such a sensual and fun experience to mm -hmm. use them like that and to use your breath like that. And I'm thinking of of my, my children when they were little, they were always making shooting noises or noises with their mouth. They, they just, they, and then when they were tired, they would self-soothe. They would sit in the back of the car and do that. It is, it is a primal and very important part of being human, as Jillian said, to enjoy making those noises and then put them in a rhythmic structure. Yeah. Mm. Love that. Mm. And it is a fabulous way for people to make music. Yes. 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 And the whole performance thing as well, which is mm. even almost mm. even separate from music, is the whole performing thing that people do in beatboxing because it's so dynamic. Mm. It's mm. so dynamic. What would you say is the difference between this rhythmic beatboxing that we're talking about? And then the more spoken rhythmic text that goes over top of it. What is the relationship between those two things? And is it through these different kinds of air that you're talking, air uses that you're talking about? Yeah. If you break some, I mean, if you're hearing somebody doing beatboxing and using words at the same time, if you slow it down, and I have done this, um, um, my favorite program was a thing called The Amazing Slow Downer. Mm. And I used to love <laughs> using that because you can slow down vibrato to individual beats and all oh, sorts wow. of things. Um, and yes, I do do that. I am that sort of person. Um, the thing about when you hear people using words on, over the top of beatboxing is that if you slow it down, you will hear that they are not pronouncing all the words. Mm -hmm. They're not pronouncing all the consonants. They're not necessarily pronouncing all the vowels. They are giving the audience cues that give them enough information to fill the blank in. Yeah, fascinating. Sure. And this is the, I mean, the whole thing about audience cues is just fascinating mm -hmm. because we now use the audience cue thing in teaching diction and articulation because you need to give an audience enough clue in the word that they know what it is, but mm. you don't need to give them any more. And a lot of those clues are contextual. Yep. You know, what what's that word most likely to be within that sentence? So you, you yes. hear people talking about diction like it's a machine gun. Mm. Right. And right. machine gun doesn't work. Mm. I mean, you're, yes, congratulations, you're working really, really hard to spit all the consonants out, but I don't want all the consonants. And if I speak or whatever like this, does it make you understand me any better? No, it just makes me look at you very puzzled. <laughs> it actually allows us to process less because yes. of the whole prosody thing, which was uh, not so much an aspect of that part of the book, but working with speaking voice, that we use prosody that, you know, there's music there, 
automatically in the way that we speak. And that was certainly something that when I was working with actors and, you know, here I was having trained as a singer, working with a bunch of actors, most of whom did not want to sing, uh, and then getting them to explore using speech. You know, you've got notes here, people. You're already singing notes. Yes. Expressive. Why don't we explore that a bit further? The music in your language is not so far from that music that's written on the page that makes you feel alienated. And that was another very interesting part of that journey that I think shaped my teaching. Well, you know, that's related to this idea of you sing as you speak. Mm -hmm. But if you're speaking, I mean, I, I don't want to get down on uh, my Native Americans, but I can talk like this and you can understand everything I'm saying. Uh, or I can talk like this and you can understand. But if, if you sing only using that place, mm-hmm. you've really limited yourself. Yes. Yeah. Oh, in, in expression, which is leads into another question. What's the difference between musicianship and musicality? Oh, love this. <gasps> love this. Okay. Okay. Do you want to say what you think? Okay. Uh, I, well, yeah. both of you, I think, should say, because of you have different musical backgrounds than I have. You're much more collaborative musicians. Yeah. I mean, I, I in a similar way, I came from the instrumental background. Mm-hmm. So um, although I sang as a treble, as a... a oh, yeah. Know, I sang my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Um, right. Musicianship, I think, is knowledge... It's the it's almost the intellectual side of knowledge, mm. and musicality is not the intellectual side of knowledge. <laughs> I'm not sure right. what it is, right? But if you like, musicianship is knowing the difference between um, a quarter note and an eighth note, right? Or being able to hear it, even if you don't use those words. Yeah, or or um, pitching, or you know, it's almost the intellectual side of it. Mm. Um, and you can be an extremely skilled and polished musician. Mm. Musicality does not necessarily need you to read music. No, and and I know many many people with excellent musicianship skills who cannot sing musically. Yes. And uh, and likewise, many, many incredibly musical people who just have a basic problem with learning to count that seems to be some sort of block, or maybe it wasn't encouraged when they were growing up or whatever. But sometimes, and this is what I miss about being able to sing, honestly, if you can sing a phrase musically, they will hear it yeah. and have trouble reproducing it unless you take a very long time to show them how you're drawing out a vowel, how you're shaping the phrase, how you're imbuing the onset with some breath, um, how you're using consonants for emotional effect. If you slow that all down and literally spoon feed it, they will learn it in that moment, but then not be able to reproduce it for the next song. Oh, that's, yeah, that's really good. You know, I had a conversation with a teacher about exactly that this morning. Um, First of all, I want to say that um, we've been talking about musicianship as though it's it's to do with the literary skill of reading music. I don't think it is because there are many excellent um, musicians, jazz musicians who don't read who have excellent musicianship, understanding of harmony and rhythm. Okay, so you're yeah, you're saying that we're thinking about it in the context of classical music. 
Western lyric music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I was fair. I was actually going to bring that up. The yeah, written tradition. So, yeah. yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think you can still be an excellent musician from an orally transmitted. Um, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Tradition. Musicality, I think, is the ability to express yourself through music. Now. What does that mean? Does that mean somehow within the culture of the music that we've listened to or, or that we're, we're learning, we know how to, as you've just described in detail, how to shape a phrase and, and how to kind of move through it? How do we how do we learn that? I mean, I guess I learned it because my mum always sang. She was singing all the time. She almost certainly sang when I was in the womb. And I was apparently singing in tune from the age three. And, you know, maybe that's how we learn it. Maybe those people haven't been exposed early enough. Well, I think you're on to something here. Both my parents were professional musicians. They were both singers. And uh, to have this surrounded by you, because they were also musical musicians, (laughs) to have it around you as part of the uh, rhythm of everyday life, mm. you do pick it up. But I also think we used to learn it through listening to really fine recordings. And I, I think that, uh, and I wrote a Nat's Journal of Singing article on this back in 2012. I think with the advent of technology and the use of electronic tools to create sonic landscapes that aren't necessarily live and acoustic Mm -hmm. and we're listening to these sounds through tiny earbuds right it it flatlines the experience of listening and making music so that when people come and try to study singing they are singing in that flatline place that they have grown up listening to Mm. and i remember once uh, working with a high school age, I used to work with a with with a lot of high school and junior high age. I don't anymore. Uh, he, he was a musical theater singer. He was wonderfully energetic and a wonderful student. And I played him a recording of Dmitry Horovskosky, the the Russian bass. And, yeah. and he looked at me and he said, "Oh no, that's manipulation. He's manipulating his tone to get like that. Nobody sings like that." And I got him and his mother to accompany my my husband and I to hear um, him, uh, Horostovsky, live at the Kennedy Center. And the the kid was looking for the electronic manipulation equipment. So there was no frame of reference for that could have informed what he was doing if he had wanted it. And. So I think that it's two things. It's not only learning it from other musicians who are musical musical but it's also what are we listening to what's the diet of what we're listening to because that's what we become then oh can i I, I, okay immediately i want to go off in two entirely different directions there's so much to unpick hang on the the i want to unpick (laughs) julianne's in a good good way way. i want to (laughs) okay i was gonna say sorry (laughs) no it's fine it's fine there was something that i thought when you were talking about musicality Mm. and being uh the ability to communicate through music Mm. And I thought about that. And as usual, I go to all the corners, I go to the crossroads, I go to any part that I'm going, but what about this situation? Mm. And I immediately went to some very, very fine instrumentalists who can't sing. Yes. So they are 
communicating beautifully on their instrument, but you put them on a voice and they can't communicate in the same way. And my first question to myself was, therefore, is musicality contextual or is it taught? Can it be learnt? Can you transfer that skill from instrument to voice or is that too hard a road? So do you, is the musicality innate because it's already there in your instrument or is it not innate? It's only contextual to whatever it is that you're working with. And I do have this thought that it's one of the things that I like doing is helping people find where they resonate the best. Yes. And I'm not talking voices, I'm talking life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like I, somebody will Beautiful. come to me and I'm going, uh, I hear what you're doing, but actually... I don't think that style really works for you, no matter how good you're singing it. I think this style works better for you. I can hear it in you, even though you're not singing it. Can you try that one? Or I hear you singing, but then I hear you playing the saxophone and I'm going, the saxophone is where you live. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The singing is nice, but the saxophone is where, where your heart is. That's actually a really good point, because how many times have you had someone come to you who thinks they want to insert sound or think they want to and you're working with them and and you're going and and this other voice is starting to evolve and I think that's what voice lessons need to be Mm. what are you what you know getting underneath the layers Mm -hmm. Um, I have this little poem underneath the layers of lovers and naysayers lies the beauty that is you the voice that is true and um it's true. You're peeling away the layers. It can be scary to a singer, especially if they're professional and they say, well, I have to be able to, I have to be able to belt this. Mm-hmm. And like you were talking about at the beginning, there's different kinds of belt. There's different ways to communicate. There's that. And I don't know if we're getting that from, we're not getting that from the major theaters, Broadway and you know, Covenant Garden and all these, we're not getting that. We're getting it at the regional and local level mm-hmm. where they are telling singers they have to do that. But if you go to the big theaters, if you go to people who are doing these things, they're not just belting. Yes, their belt might be great or they're cla- or they want to sing classically. Oh, Lord God, that is another whole, you know, they're coming from, uh, they're coming from maybe um country and they want to sing classically that's that's a and then and yet they live somewhere else yeah. that's part of the puzzle that's part of the joy of working and you have to have people willing to go with you on this and trust that you might have something to say here that they need to consider yeah and it's still their decision if they if they want to stay in in whatever they're doing but um Gillian and I are all about flexibility. Mm, I mean, there's some things I want to say here. First of all, Jeremy, um, may I make a plea for <laughs> you the, may. the instrumentalists who play well and who are fabulous? It may not be that they can't sing, but that they don't sing and that they don't sing well. Uh, just the same as um, if they are used to being a keyboard player and if they're picked up a violin, they might not actually be very good. Yes. But that said, what you've both said, which is this is actually not where you live, then um, it's about them finding finding their home, their musical home, their expressive home. What do they do best? And I think that is one of our jobs as guides and teachers. And I think it depends why they come to us. 
and what are the kind of people that we want to attract. Because, you know, we're going to have, as teachers, we're going to have people come to us who maybe have, you know, some country all their life, and they think, I'd really like to have a go at some classical. Great. So you find something that it's fairly easy to to move Yes. Mm-hmm. You give them that experience. You dialogue with them uh, about that experience. And maybe there's something from that experience that they might want to take back with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a case necessarily of saying, no, you mustn't. But you're talking gradient. You're talking You're talking steps towards rather than, and now you are going to change career. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I've had someone that I worked with a long time ago who I think was a, a cruise singer or something like that, you know, much more of a kind of a crooner, easy listening kind right. of young man, uh, very good at imitation. And of course, you know, with all the stuff like the voice and everything and Britain's Got Talent, um, he wanted to sing like Pavarotti. And so he picked up Ness and Dormer and actually didn't do a bad job of it. So, um, you know, he, he'd gone off to one of the leading conservatoires here in the UK to have a lesson with someone. And the response was, I don't want to hear that. Yes. He yes. did not and even ri- give him a chance. And ripping to the music sing up. It. Yeah. Ripping the music up. And this guy had paid for that lesson. And he came to me and I just thought that was tragic. You know, I, I don't think either side, either the popular music teachers or, or the MT or the classical, just to name three um, typical genres, I don't think any of us really has the right to do that. If we don't want to teach that person, then we say, do you know what? I th- uh, Let's do some work together and I, I'll refer you on. Yes, well, and I think what you're talking about, and, and I, I don't mean to be flip when I talk about somebody who wants to do, she, she's a country singer who wants to do classical. Mm. I think what we're talking about here is the ability to manage expectations. Mm-hmm. Mm. Manage expectations, managing expectations is a very tricky but valuable skill because you want to encourage, Mm. you want to give them a taste of something else, you want to maybe open up new horizons in them, not that they're going to go sing that, but for their own sense of groundedness in self. Mm. Um, But then managing the expectation is another whole thing. And and you have to be able to explain to them in a kind way, well, we're going to be working with this because your body, mind, and heart are not ready to handle this. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, you know, I've mentioned this before. I appear occasionally on my, my son Adam Neely's YouTube channel. He has the largest jazz music education and gig channel uh, on the internet right now. And we were talking about this managing expectations And what that comes down to is realizing that, yes, because you have the experience, because you have this, because you have that, doesn't make you the boss of them. You're still, when that student, you're still in a collaborative vein. And if you're not, you need to accept that about yourself and find a way to not ruin someone else's life because you you expect X, Y, Z. Does that make any sense? It's about understanding the difference between your expectations and what the client brings and being 
honest about that. I mean, it, it is a form of boundaries and understanding yes. and being client led and, and also having the courage if, you know, someone comes to you and, and really all they want is to have you hold the space for them to enjoy singing. If that's not your bag, it's not mine then um you you know someone who does mm, right and encourage them to to move on and you're absolutely right you don't you don't ruin someone's life and their expectations and and their dreams um i think it it's something we talk about a lot with our teachers it isn't is it, it is there's managing a de- expectations there's a decision making process yeah. though that is that is absolutely implicit in this which is mm. if somebody comes to you for a lesson and they say i want to do x um, and that X is a very high flying something and mm. they are not up to the standard that you would normally expect mm. for that high flying, whatever it is. It's still not your responsibility to say, no, you can't. Right. Because you aren't in charge of that job. Mm. Right. You're in charge of your studio and you can decide whether you want to work with that person or not. And you can decide whether you want to say, uh, let's break this down or let's let's build up to it or however it is that you want to do that. But mm-hmm. you can't say you won't or you'll never mm-hmm. because you are not in charge of everybody else. And it, it it's happened so much to me that I've somebody's come in and I've thought they've gone for an audition because I do a lot of audition coaching. Mm. And I've thought, well, I'm not sure that, that the panel are going to like that because it doesn't match with my experience of doing that show. Right. And it's a different director and they get the recalls mm. and they get down to the final two. And I'm going, hey, I got it wrong. Mm. So I know that I can't say that thing will not happen because I'm not in charge of it. Okay, so if people want to talk to you, if they want to find out about you, how do they get hold of you? Well, my website is Kate, C-A-T-E-F-N, studios.com, Kate FN Studios. And my email is Kate, C-A-T-E-F-N, at gmail.com. You can also read more about our book, Singing Through Change, at singingthroughchange.com. There's lots of interviews and resources for uh, women in singing in midlife and beyond there. But I, I must say, I really enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation because I just don't want to be known as the menopause lady. Yep. <laughs> Understood. Thank you. You have a much more eclectic life. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you, Kate. That's brilliant. This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kayes and Jeremy Fisher.